Welcome to Skim This. We're going to get right into some headlines this week, because if someone this weekend brings up the possibility of COVID coming from a Chinese lab, you'll be glad you know what's going on. We've also got the story on Congress's emotional reunion with one of their oldest and truest friends, the earmark. And if your planning for Memorial Day weekend involved making sure you packed your allergy pills, we'll talk to a pollen expert about why this year's felt so rough. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. Let's skim this. All right, let's get to a few headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, we've been paying a lot of attention to this story over the last two weeks. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met today with Israeli and Palestinian leaders, hoping to solidify the peace after the deadliest fighting in years left Gaza in ruins. Here's the context. The U.S. was initially like, keep me out of this. The reports are President Biden didn't have resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict at the top of his agenda. But when fighting broke out earlier this month, Biden got more involved. And this week, he sent America's top diplomat to the region. The goal of Secretary of State Blinken's visit is apparently to try to turn last week's ceasefire into something more permanent and give both sides in this conflict some reassurances. There's been talk of the U.S. helping Israel refortify its Iron Dome missile defense system, and on the other side, of providing several million dollars in emergency aid and development assistance to the Palestinians. But what we don't know yet is whether the U.S. is going to use this opportunity to try to restart proper peace talks. Not that that'll be easy. Just look at the region's history. But the fighting this month also shows the cost of doing nothing. All right, next headline. European Union leaders have announced sanctions against Belarus after it forcibly diverted a Ryanair flight and arrested a dissident journalist. Here's what you need to know about this kind of crazy story. We've talked about the situation in Belarus a few times in recent months. Last year, Alexander Lukashenko, the president of almost 27 years, was re-elected to a sixth term in office. His critics cried foul when the president allegedly received more than 80% of the vote, despite facing some pretty popular opponents. There were weeks of mass protests, but also waves of arrests as Lukashenko systematically rounded up his critics. And on Sunday, he struck again. That's when Roman Protasevich, a Belarusian activist who used media channels to organize protests, was on a Ryanair flight from Greece to Lithuania. But when the plane briefly flew over Belarus, things got weird. Air traffic control told the pilots, we think there's a bomb on the plane. You've got to land right now. Belarus even dispatched a fighter jet to escort the plane to the ground. Then they made everyone get off the plane, they searched people's luggage, and surprise, surprise, arrested Protasevich. Turns out, the whole bomb scare was just a ruse to capture this opposition leader. And pretty quickly, the European Union freaked out. This plane was flying between two EU countries and belonged to a European airline. And now, many analysts say Belarus faking a bomb threat to arrest a political dissident violated international law by essentially hijacking the plane under a false pretense. And now, the EU is getting payback. This week, it banned airlines from Belarus from flying to the EU. And some major airlines are now avoiding flying over Belarus, too, possibly worried they and their passengers could be targeted again. These sanctions are meant to change Lukashenko's behavior. But he was already called Europe's last dictator before this latest scandal. 
and apparently he's not embarrassed about the nickname. Here's something else you might have heard about this week. In Texas, getting hands on a handgun about to become even easier. Here's the context. Texas already has some of the loosest gun laws in the United States, and it went one step further this week after its legislature approved a bill that would allow almost anyone over the age of 21 to carry a handgun in public, no license necessary. All that's left for this bill to become law is a quick signature from Governor Greg Abbott, which is expected any day now. People cheering Abbott on? The NRA, and those who say the Second Amendment means we can have a gun anytime, any place. Quick thing to know, that's what gun rights advocates call constitutional carry. But the bill has others up in arms, like members of Texas law enforcement, who say this bill critically threatens the safety of officers and Texas citizens. And gun control advocates have pointed to recent mass shootings in Texas, including in El Paso and Sutherland Springs, as reasons for gun control in the state, and not more guns on the streets. Okay, last headline, which is kind of more like movie trivia. Yes, my name is Bond, James Bond. Here's the context. Move over, 007. The name's Bezos, Jeff Bezos. On Wednesday, Amazon announced it would acquire the TV and movie studio MGM. MGM is kind of like old-school Hollywood royalty, because it's been around for almost a century. During that time, it produced some all-time classic films, like Rocky, Legally Blonde, and James Bond. MGM's TV studio also makes some gems, including Shark Tank, The Handmaid's Tale, and The Voice. But if Amazon's already got the lock on where you might buy your groceries, your shampoo, or even your birth control, why'd they also buy a movie studio? Well, some commentators are calling this Amazon's biggest move yet in the entertainment space. Amazon is paying a premium to get access to MGM's treasure trove of movies and shows, which they'll put on their streaming platform, Amazon Prime Video. Having more shows and movies available on their platform also means Amazon will likely be more competitive with other entertainment giants, like Netflix and Disney. So think of this latest move from Amazon like yet another sequel to the great streaming wars going down in Hollywood. Half of American adults are vaxxed. COVID cases in the U.S. are at the lowest levels since last June, and Memorial Day weekend is about to look a lot different than it did last year. So we're not going to bring you down with some super depressing COVID story. But there is one headline we did want to mention really briefly. President Biden wants the intelligence community to find out where the coronavirus came from, including the possibility that it escaped from China's lab in Wuhan. On Wednesday, Biden said he wants U.S. intelligence officials to investigate how COVID-19 originated and report back in 90 days. That order made us do a double take because it's giving new life to a theory that's been dismissed for a while, that the virus came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China, which is home to some very infectious diseases. If you're thinking, didn't we rule out this lab leak theory back in 2020? Here's the deal in 60 seconds. Last year, former President Trump was adamant COVID-19 came from that Wuhan lab and that China was covering it up. But scientists mostly agreed the virus probably jumped from animals to humans, which is how other diseases like Ebola and SARS spread. A WHO report from earlier this year didn't offer a conclusive answer about COVID's origins, but wrote off the lab leak theory as extremely unlikely. 
However, this week, the Wall Street Journal released a bombshell, reporting that, according to a previously undisclosed U.S. intelligence report, three researchers at that Wuhan lab were hospitalized in November 2019 with symptoms that could have been COVID. According to U.S. Intel, more info is needed to learn whether the meat market or lab theory is more likely, leading Biden to say, keep digging then. Clues about where the virus came from matter, because they're our best shot at preventing outbreaks of other viruses in the future. And as we wait for that next report, be prepared to hear commentators wondering if the lab leak theory should have been taken more seriously earlier. Until this week, Facebook had blocked people from posting about the virus being man-made. And while that isn't the same thing as the virus coming from a lab, get ready to see more about it on your feed. How'd we do? Want us to skim another complex story from the news on an upcoming episode? Send in your questions to audio at theskim.com. Hey, thanks for listening to Skim This. If you're a fan of the show, we'd love it if you could help us spread the word and tell a friend or family member about us. It's the best and easiest way to help us out. And don't worry, if your mom or grandma is like, what's a news podcast? Tell them Skim This is the easiest way to get the week's news without paying for cable or having to remember your New York Times subscription password. Or, and this might be easier, just borrow their iPhone, find the Purple Podcast app, and sign them up. All right, back to the show. This week marks one year since George Floyd was murdered by a former Minneapolis police officer. His murder reinvigorated the Black Lives Matter movement and also ignited conversations about police reform at the state and federal levels. So we wanted to know, one year later, has police reform in the U.S. really changed anything yet? We have made some progress. And that progress has come because of decades of organizing before George Floyd was murdered. That's Judith Brown Dianis. She's the executive director of the Advancement Project, a civil rights organization. And she reminded us, before we even think about what's changed in the last year, we need to take a second to understand it's been a long fight to even have these conversations in the first place. It didn't just start last year, right? Like, like I know for Advancement Project, we've been around for 21 years. When we talk about racial justice, when we talk about white supremacy, when we talk about policing issues, even when we talk about voter suppression, we know that these issues are marathons. With that in mind, we wanted to know, where is police reform happening? I would say that what we have seen is at the local level, You probably remember people talking about defunding the police last year, a.k.a. directing money normally put towards policing into other community services and programs. We've seen many cities where there has been a decrease in the funding of police. So, for example, in Austin, Texas, where their budget went from it was 40 percent of the city's budget went to policing. It's now 26 percent. And it's not just Austin doing this. More than 20 major U.S. cities have cut their police budgets and diverted that money to services like mental health and housing. But what about actually changing police behavior on the job? For instance, eliminating chokeholds. At least 17 states have banned or restricted police use of chokeholds in the past year. And that's not all. Other communities, including in Colorado, New Jersey, and New York, are requiring officers to wear body cameras. And Virginia banned no-knock warrants when police enter a property without announcing themselves. Other police departments, like in California, are mandating bias training. 
These might all sound like changes that are urgent and necessary, but Brown Dianis told us just having some new laws on the books doesn't necessarily reduce police violence. There's not one thing that we could legislate that would have prevented the murder of George Floyd. And so what we have to do is think about how are we getting away from relying on the institution of policing? Because we can't train our way out of this. We can't body cam our way out of this. We can't put new laws and new restrictions on them. But how are we stopping the idea of us even interacting with them? Here's an example. We have seen police removed from over 35 school districts, including places like Denver and Oakland, where young people push to actually dismantle, get rid of a whole school police department. Not relying on police to do certain jobs in the first place, she says, is part of a larger rethink of the role law enforcement plays in American life. Which, she believes, starts with challenging the long-held narrative, reinforced through Hollywood and the media, that the police are always the good guys. We have what we call copaganda. So that's one thing, is that we have to change the story, right? Two is that we have laws that protect them, qualified immunity that allows them to live above the law to use of force standards. Three is that we have police unions that protect them. Police unions have put money into not only protecting police when they are charged with murder, but they also give money to elected officials when they're running. So all of those pieces have to be changed for us to see significant change. And I think what we're seeing in the country is that people are starting to understand and connect the dots. Reimagining our relationship with the police is going to take a long time, and counting on all of that work getting done in one year wasn't really realistic. But Brown Dianis thinks using this one-year anniversary of Floyd's death to look at what the U.S. has done and still needs to do is a helpful, though painful, exercise. One-year moments are hard because, I, first of all, I can hear his screams in, in my head. You know, it's, it's seared into my memory for forever. Thinking about his family, his, his daughter, Gianna, and, and living without her dad for the rest of her life, and he should be alive. And so it is hard. It's also important that we reflect on what has changed. Because for those of us who do this work around racial justice, these milestones are important for us to see the progress and not to like walk away from, oh, we didn't do anything, nothing has changed. Things have changed. They may not be as sweeping and as broad as we want them to be, but things have changed. And we got a lot more work to do. After a long hiatus, a pair of star-crossed lovers are reuniting. No, not Benefer, the U.S. Congress and Earmarks. The way Earmarks work is that individual reps will slip in requests for federal funding into the huge annual bill to fund the federal government. No one of these earmarks is usually that big, but when everybody's earmarking, it can add up. That's one reason earmarks basically went away 10 years ago, after a Republican House majority banned them over corruption concerns, and President Obama threatened to veto any spending bills containing earmarks. But late last year, a bipartisan group of lawmakers came up with a new proposal for bringing them back. 
Democrats got back on board in February after realizing earmarks might help them win Republican support for passing things like President Biden's infrastructure bill. And while that bill's future is uncertain, earmarks might be back anyway. In March, House Republicans voted to allow their members to bring back certain earmarks, too. If you're thinking, these earmarks seem pretty transactional, you'd be right. If a particular rep is hesitant about supporting a bill, they might change their mind if they can use it to fund some project that they care about. And that means a lot of earmarks end up being local and affecting just a politician's state or district. Take the 2005 budget, which contained an earmark for Alaska's infamous Bridge to Nowhere. More than 220 million federal dollars were initially earmarked to connect the town of Ketchikan, population around 8,500, to Gravina Island, population a few dozen. And some other things earmarks have funded kind of seem, well, you tell us. The Teapot Museum in Sparta, North Carolina. $270,000 for an effort to combat goth culture. A planning workshop, price tag $100,000, that included a session called Did Jesus Die for Klingons? But the fact that a lot of earmarks end up funding silly-sounding local projects isn't the only argument against them. According to one analysis from a decade ago, when earmarks were a thing, minority lawmakers in the Democratic Party seem to get significantly fewer earmark dollars than their white counterparts. Second, lobbying firms banked on access to earmarks for their clients. Some of the top lobbying firms in D.C. built their entire business models around this system. And third, there's always the complaint that the earmark process eats up a lot of politicians' time, focusing on small projects when they should be writing legislation. But now that earmarks do seem to be back, there could be a few reasons to keep them around. One argument in favor of them is that they help encourage bipartisan cooperation in Congress, which has been declining for years. Another pro-earmark argument is that legislators know what their constituents need a lot better than the federal government. So giving them a bit more control over what gets funded might help out more people in the long run. And third, some of the sketchier parts of the old-school earmark process are a thing of the past. New earmarks will get treated more like grants. For-profit groups can't get earmarks anymore, each legislator can't request more than 10, and there's a cap on how much earmarks can cost Congress overall. According to the bipartisan group that proposed these rules, that makes this new earmark system less likely to be abused. But as for whether Congress and earmarks are in it for the long haul, like Benefer 2.0, we'll probably have to wait and see. Before we go today, we need to talk about two. Sorry, we need to talk about allergies. The pollen this year, am I right? When we told the rest of the skim we were interviewing Fiona Lowe, a researcher and pollen expert at the University of Washington, the whole company was like, Help us, please. Lowe gets it. It's why this is her job. Yeah, I suffer from allergies. I think I started getting them in my mid-20s. Turns out, you can develop allergies in adulthood. One thing I have learned is most of the adults that have really bad allergies are usually from a different place. If you've never been exposed in your childhood, then you can actually have a more severe reaction as an adult. 
which might explain why someone who grew up in SoCal without bad allergies might start sneezing up a storm when they move to New England. But besides that, there are other reasons this allergy season feels especially brutal. It's kind of an unrelenting cycle. In parts of the U.S., a drier and warmer spring has extended the tree pollen season, pushing it right up until the time grass pollen season begins. And you can thank climate change for that. A recent study found climate change could explain why the pollen season is now 20 days longer than it was in the 90s. And since plants breathe in CO2 and CO2 levels are rising, not only is the pollen season longer, overall pollen concentration is up too. But if even that can't explain your suffering this allergy season, there could be other things at play. Some scientists have suggested that reduced exposure to pollen last year might have caused our pollen tolerance to wear off, making this year a nasty surprise. And Lowe says other changes to your pandemic routine could also be at work. You know, you're maybe spending more time outdoors or you have your windows open more in the indoor spaces and there's more pollen that you're exposed to. Which makes sense to our producer, Luke, who absolutely hates leaf blowers. Do not get me started. And who finds working from home in the suburbs with landscapers kicking up pollen every afternoon has made his allergies worse than they were at the office. As for how to deal with your allergies, a lot of experts recommend washing your clothes after coming in from outside or buying drapes and sofa cushions that can be easily washed. And if a walk around the neighborhood is leaving your eyes and nose running, Lowe says maybe pick up that recently removed COVID mask and pop it back on for allergy protection, especially if you're working in the garden or dealing with this next door. Oh my God. It's the spring. There are literally no leaves outside. All right, Luke. Here's another tip. If you're used to reaching for your allergy meds when you feel your allergies kicking in, Lowe's got some advice. I used to not take over-the-counter medication until I felt bad. But apparently, they recommend pre-treatment, which is taking medications before you actually get your symptoms. Because once you have symptoms, it's a lot harder to get them under control again or it might take more medication or stronger medication. And this is where her research on pollen forecasting could lead to some breakthroughs. All of the pretty allergenic pollens that bother humans are ones that come from plants that pollinate by wind. Like they are reproducing and they want to let off a ton of pollen. They want it to like travel as far and as wide as possible so that they can reach other plants of the same species. And that airborne pollen can travel really far. I talked to a pollen observation station in London, Ontario, so in Canada, and they were getting pollen from, I think, Oklahoma. So that was traveling hundreds of miles. All of which means tracking pollen, like literally following its movements like we track storms days in advance, could give allergy sufferers a useful heads up. If we can make a forecast like a week in advance, say we think grass season is going to start next week, then you go, okay, great. I'm going to start taking my medication now and hopefully never get to the stage where your symptoms are bad. Problem is, even though an estimated 60 million Americans suffer from allergies, there are only a few pollen monitoring stations in the U.S., which makes it almost impossible to create any sort of pollen warning system. I would love to get more pollen stations and more data. That's like the linchpin. Like without 
these observations, there's only so much we can do with analysis and forecasting and modeling. Which makes us kind of want to play matchmaker. Hey, Congress, if you're just tossing out earmarks left and right, Lowe says, give her a call. With a few million bucks, she thinks the U.S. could build the best pollen forecasting system in the world and give millions of Americans some sweet relief. Great. So if you can broadcast this and get a lot of people on board, maybe we can get grassroots pressure on them to give me money. That'd be great. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Luke Vargas and me, Alex Carr, with additional help from Kira Long. This episode was engineered by Andrew Calloway. The Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.